Hi, and welcome to the Northridge Vineyard Evening Community Podcast. We're a church community in Sydney, Australia, who are passionate about pursuing God together and seeing the world changed by His love. We hope this message challenges and inspires you. For more talks and other resources, please visit our website, www.northridge.org.au. I am finishing off the last of our series on suffering. So we've had two sessions so far. Ah, we've got that working. That's beautiful. And so we've actually had Chris come and introduce the topic and he's talked about some of the philosophical and theological struggles that we confront when we encounter suffering in our lives and try and marry that up with having a good God. So I think I want to keep at the forefront of everything we talk about tonight that we do have a good God. We have a kind, compassionate, loving God. And I think anything that comes in the way of that and starts to pull us away from seeing God in that way gets to be a little problematic. And so suffering, obviously, is one of those things. And watching our friends suffer, definitely is one of those things. So I'm hoping tonight we'll pull some things out that are good for walking other people through suffering, but also for walking ourselves through suffering because some of us are really good at walking other people through suffering and not so great at walking ourselves through suffering. So it's a bit of a two-way street. If you're good at one, you can do the other, okay? So transferable skill base. So if you're good at one, start thinking about how you can do this the other way around. And um, it's good. You can diversify. So I am going to jump back into the book of Job, um, mostly because I think what happened to poor old Job has some object lessons in it. Now, Job is a very interesting book in that it's quite old. I haven't known what to make of it for a very long time, and people have varying opinions about it. So I think where I've landed is it's probably an allegory. It's situated and kind of located in the time space that is probably around the time that Abraham's father lived, okay? So we're situating it in a very ancient Eastern culture. And in that Eastern culture, they had certain ideas about who God was and how God operated. And what you'll see coming out through Job the whole time is this idea that God is just So there is a definite fixation on God is just, he must be just, and because God is just, he rewards the good and he punishes the evil. And hence their explanation for suffering sat very much in the context of if you do bad things, you will suffer. Now, along comes Job. And so he's an interesting fellow because God has quite a lot to say about him. So he says that Job was actually blameless. So I don't know if God says that about too many people. I'd like him to say it about me, but I don't know if he'll go there, quite honestly. (laughs) I'm not going to meet that standard. But he did actually say that about Job. And so we have quite a problem here when we work through the book of Job and his friends don't seem to agree with the idea that he could be blameless because they're bumping into something in their theology that won't allow them to go there. So I want to look at that and how they possibly might have got there. 
So if you have a look at the first chapter in Job, there is an interesting thing that happens. So God apparently is sitting in his divine council. So he has before him what they call the sons of God. Now you'll see this phrase pop up a few different places in scripture, mostly in the Old Testament. You'll find it in Psalms and I think a few of the prophetic books like Zechariah, Isaiah. And what it's actually talking about is God sitting with his divine angelic beings and administrating the world. And so God, being the God that he is, he likes to, re to relate to his creation. And so he's relating to these angelic beings. They also have free will and some of them have differences of opinion. So sometimes they challenge God and they come up with different ideas and so God might debate the issue. Sometimes he'll say, how are we going to deal with Abraham? What do we do with Ahab? And someone comes up and says, how about I put a lying spirit in his mouth? And God goes, good idea. Off you go. So that is an example of this kind of situation. Now, in this situation, there's somebody called the Satan turns up. Now, in most of our Bibles, it says Satan, but that is not how the Hebrew reads. The Hebrew does not have a capital S on the word. It is the Satan. Now, what it actually means is a prosecutor or an accuser or an opponent. So what's actually happening here is this divine being has kind of said to God, you know what, this is a bit of a setup here. Job looks good, he looks blameless, but he's only behaving this way because you're really nice to him, okay? If you weren't so nice to him, he wouldn't behave this way and he wouldn't honour you. And what you're actually doing by being nice to him all the time is corrupting his motives, and so he puts it out there that, God, really, you can't be sure this dude is such a good guy and look and see what happens if you send some adversity his direction. And so the story kind of plays out from there. But I wanted you to have some context for that because those verses have confused me for a very, very long time and have left me with a kind of weird view of who God is. Okay, so one academic puts it this way. He says, the big question most people walk away with after reading Job 1 and 2 is why did God allow Job to undergo such suffering? It's crucial to realise that the Satan is not necessarily a sinister figure bent on hurting Job and God isn't a cruel gambler giving in to Satan's evil desires. That's the wrong story but it's the common one that people take away from this book. So I just wanted to clear that up before we go through the rest of Job. Otherwise, you might read Job and kind of go, oh, I don't get what God's doing here. All right, so fast forward. So we are moving on to what actually happens. So things do go down with Job and calamity does come his way. So Job upright, blameless, pious man, and where's my clicker? There it is. Poor old Job, his life is devastated, okay? He goes from being the most prosperous man in the land, he's got all the sheep, all the cows, he's got 10 kids, 
Um, he, he's a happy man. He is prosperous and his reputation is very, very good. He's well known by everybody to be a good and blameless and righteous man. And he suddenly goes into absolute devastation. So the Sabaeans come through, they slaughter his animals, burn his crops, and then God sends down lightning bolts and the animals get killed and the trees get burnt and then God sends a whirlwind and the house falls down and all his children die. Sounds good? Yeah? I'm like, awesome, God. <laughs> Poor Job. So he's in the midst of this. And then his friends wisely say, oh, my goodness, we've heard what happened. We should go and see how Job's going. We want to go and comfort him. And so Job has torn his robes, which is their expression of grief, and he's sat down on the ground and he's just not doing anything. By this time... He's also covered in boils. So his skin is pussy and weeping and disgusting. So nobody wants to be near him. He's pretty gross. So his friends come and they do a very wise thing. They see what's happened. They're devastated by his grief and his loss and the calamity. And they sit down, they tear their robes and they sit and they're silent for seven days. And there is wisdom in waiting to speak. There is so much wisdom in waiting to hear the story rather than rushing in, particularly when the devastation is at this level. So they do a smart thing there, but then things tend to move on from there and it gets a little bit interesting. So Job does what a lot of people do when they're hit by something like this. He starts doing a little bit of venting Okay, so he vents, and he vents big time. And some of the stuff he says is basically, my life should never have started. I should have died at birth. And it's like, God, kill me now. Okay, now his friends, they're not happy with this. This has just ruffled their feathers. Remember, they've got this very systematic idea about what God does and why God does stuff. And they, they can't deal with Job's lament and his cries and his pain and the concept that he's in, the state that he's in. And so the first attempt at comforting him is to actually tell him that the innocent don't suffer. Nice. Okay, could you imagine this? You've just lost your dog and someone says... Good people don't lose their dogs. Doesn't really work, does it? No? Anyone feeling comforted? No? What do you want to do? Okay? When someone says something like that, it doesn't go well. And this is what poor Job's dealing with. So he's got his wife, by the way, telling him to curse God and die. And um, now he's got his friends having a go as well. So they come up with a varied range of solutions around what is actually happening for Job and they take pieces of truth and then they misapply it and sometimes what they say might be true but it's ill-timed or it's inappropriate and so I guess that speaks to there are truths in the Bible and some of these truths are even 
echoed. So they come up in the Psalms and they come up in Hebrew. So things like, you know, God uses some of these situations for discipline, for growth and maturity. But do you really want to hear that after you've just lost 10 kids? Maybe not. So the timing's off. And this is problematic. So this kind of just escalates as the conversation goes on until we get to a point where they're actually suggesting to Job he must have sinned, he absolutely had to have sinned, and who's he killed, who's he deprived of food, and, and the list goes on. They make a catalogue of stuff. And that is the point where Job kind of cracks it and says, I want an audience with God. Okay, I want someone to hear my case. And this is where Chris picked it up a few weeks a few weeks back where he has the conversation with God. And if you were listening to that, you would have known that the answer to the end of the story was there was no answer. There was no particular answer to the suffering except for God is sovereign. He knows far more than us. There's so much going on and he does not micromanage the cosmos. And so to try and attribute every single thing that goes on in your life to something that God has done or decided to do to you will get you off on the wrong track. So that's kind of where it lands. So, needless to say, Job is not comforted. Not at all. So he's, he's quite an unhappy man who's now got to deal with all these friends who are actually increasing his pain. So not only is he burdened with everything he's lost, he's now got the added burden of being judged and criticised and defamed and all those other things, which is not terribly nice. So I hope we're all nicer to each other than that. I think we are. I think we do better than that generally. So what was God's thought about all of this? He was pretty clear at the end of this. But Job went through his little interaction with God and he came out of that going, okay, I understand, I retract all my accusations. He repented, he was reconciled to God and God was very clear. He honoured his struggle he honoured his humility. He honoured the prayers that he was praying out of the depths of his heart when he was in agony. God was in no way critical of his expressions of pain and hurt. So he totally honoured Job in that situation. But what he did say was, you three friends, oh my goodness, we need to do some um, reconciliation here. So... Job at that point actually moves into a priestly role and has to sacrifice for his three friends to reconcile the situation. So that's an interesting ending to the story. So what I would like to do is just walk through some of the things we can learn from this that help us when we're walking with other people or even when we're walking ourselves through hard times. Okay, because some of us, I know, are so hard on ourselves and we need to tune into the heart of God sometimes when we're hurting to hear what he's really saying to us rather than some of the critical voices that come up in our heads. So it's the good old thing of, would you say this to your friend if they were hurting? 
And if the answer is no, then maybe you don't want to be saying it to yourself, okay? So I think we all need to realise that when people are in pain, they need time to actually speak out the pain. They need to talk the pain through. They often need to repeat what they've said. You might have found that. They, they will tell the story over and over again because they're processing it as they talk to you. And sometimes it's very hard to sit with some of the things that they say. So sometimes they're not happy with God. They're really not. But coming in at that moment at time and saying to them, you know what, you should not be talking like that to God or you should not be angry to, with God doesn't actually help them. Okay, It actually causes a rupture in your relationship and you won't be able to walk with them the rest of the way. What they actually need is for you maybe to sit and be silent and validate what is true in their situation. So I wouldn't validate the lies. If they're saying to you, God hates me, you know, he's made this situation in my life to punish me, I wouldn't agree with those lies. You don't have to agree with that. But what you can say is, you're really hurting. I can tell you're really hurting and you can't make sense of what's going on and you feel quite hopeless in this situation and you, you just don't know how you're going to figure this out. That's validating their pain. It's not validating the lies, okay? Because we really don't want to come into agreement with the lies. So... Other things that we can do for people is know that it's their process and their experience. I know for a lot of us, we have people come to us and say, this has happened to me, and our brains go, ooh, that's happened to me. How did I figure it out? What did I do? And we go into problem-solving fix-it mode. It's, it's a fairly knee-jerk reaction. They tell me men do it more than women, but I don't know. I've got a pretty good reflexive fix-it, so... I'm not sure about that one, that might just be me. But what I've found over the years is my experience is my experience and it's not the other person's experience. Um, years ago, I had a miscarriage and I was devastated at the time and people said some interesting things to me that weren't really helpful. That's all right, that's what happens. So people say, don't worry, you'll get pregnant soon. It'll be fine. Well, actually, we didn't. And we'd waited a long time for that baby. But I then had a friend, so I did have a baby. That was all nice. And then one of the ladies in my mother's group got pregnant two months after she'd given birth to the first bub. Okay. And then about a month or so later, she miscarried. Now, in my mind, she's devastated. Okay, and I'm just about to launch into my your devastated spiel. But actually, she was not devastated. She was relieved. Relieved. She just didn't want to have to deal with another baby when one was already just so young. So your experience, other people's experience, you can't assume. It's good to spend all that time listening so that you don't put your story on top of their story. Because what you want to actually draw out is what it means to them, okay? Different things mean different things to other people. And what you're really looking for 
is the meaning to them because that's where the pain is. Okay? So if they've had a loss in their life, it may not just be about the loss, it may be about the ideas that they have about what does that mean. Does that mean God doesn't love me because he hasn't given me what I needed in this situation? And often that's where the pain is and that's the things that we need to pray into and talk through with people. We need to give them space to be real. So I all know we, we like to be very tidy and not, not bring our mess in. Hey, So I like to do my mess in private, honestly, but that's not everybody. And I know for some of us, things get messy and we come in and we have a cry and I think, you know, in this space, it's generally pretty safe to be who you are and to be real, and I think that's one of the blessings we have in here is people get accepted for wherever they are, and we like to sit alongside people and just move them along. doesn't matter how much snot's involved. It's usually okay, and we walk that out together. But I know in other spaces it's not always like that, and you have to be very tidy, and you have to pretend, and that stops people actually connecting to others in a real way, it stops people accessing the support that they really need. And so I know it's what it's like in this space, but I know you'll bump into people in other spaces where maybe you need to give them that opportunity to be real and to let them know it doesn't matter how messy they're feeling, that you still care, that you still love them, that you're not going to dump them as a friend just because they're a little bit messy. So... Other things to be aware of, and I've probably touched on this, processing grief takes time. So try not to put time limits on people. So sometimes they say, if you're bereaved, it takes one year to get over the bereavement. Well, that's an average, and that depends. It depends on so many things. So I know people who've lost someone, it's taken them three years. It just depends. And so try not to put the time limits in. Just let them do what they need to do and know they may go up, they may go down. It's a bit unpredictable, but eventually they will walk out the other side, particularly if you're prepared to walk that journey with them. And one of the things that I love is how do we get people to start moving on when the time's right? So when we've done the journey with people... When we've developed relationship with people, when there's a level of trust that we have with people, people get the right to speak into our lives, okay? So not everybody speaks into my life. There are a handful of people that I have close relationships with who can say hard things to me. And sometimes people need to say hard things to me because that's how I am. But you can't just come up to someone who's struggling and start talking the hard things. You really do need to have relationship and you really do need to come out of a space of reflecting God's heart because really that's what you want to bring to them. You don't want to bring your words, you want to bring God's words. And he tends to kind of sit with you for a while and you might be churning in your head going, what do I say, what do I say, how do I fix this, how do I make them feel better? And God's just quiet in the background. He's not saying anything. And then suddenly he will drop something into your spirit. And when you speak to people, it will come out of that wellspring 
and not out of the wisdom that you're trying to generate in your head. And they tend to be the words that bring the breakthrough. They tend to be the words that bring the healing. They tend to be the words that let the person start to move on because they're starting to go, okay, there is hope. There is a different way of seeing things. And so that's when they start to move. But you go there too soon, you go there without relationship, you may do damage to the relationship rather than bringing healing. And then the last thing I was going to talk about is that we are called to bear one another's burdens, but we're not actually their saviours. So it's a tricky little thing that we do. So we sit alongside others when they're suffering and others do that for us, but it's very much a balancing act. So we try and give them space for their pain. We try and give them space to talk without shutting them down. We're often sitting with our own discomfort in that because it's, it's often not a comfortable thing and we often feel quite helpless, which isn't any fun either. And then at the same time, we try and hold it all very loosely because really at the end of the day, this is God's process with them, okay? We just get the privilege to sit alongside if we happen to be in the right place at the right time and we come along with his heart for the ride. So we're just facilitating God's process in the best possible scenario, okay? So we're listening to him, we're listening to them and we're trying to just hold that and see what he says and speak the words that he says and we don't carry the bulk of the weight. If you try and carry the bulk of the weight for some of these things you bump into, it, it will squash you flat. It's too much, okay? So you really do need to know that God is there, that God is in the interactions. It's not your responsibility to make sure that this person comes through. Really, it's down to God and you have to let God into that space. So it is possible to get so involved in someone's dilemma and problems that you start to take the place of God in their life and that gets a little bit tricky because always we want to be directing them back to God. So just be mindful. It's God's problem. Keep giving it to God. Don't take it on yourself because you don't want to implode either. That's not good for you. And you may deprive them of actually walking this journey with God if you do too much of the God stuff for them, okay? So it's so great if you can come in and you can pray and you can ask the questions that take people back to God. You know, what's God doing in here? What's he got in it for you? What's he want you to know about your situation right now? Who does he want to be for you right now? Because they're the ones that get people going back to God and starting to use God as their resource rather than you. So you're lovely trainer wheels, don't get me wrong. <laughs> it's good to be trainer wheels, but at the end of the day, you want them able to ride the bike for themselves. 